My name is Dr. Joy, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. By the grace of a loving God that I came to understand by taking the 12 steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous with a lot of help from a good sponsor and a strong home group, I haven't had to drink alcohol since the 21st day of February, 1980, and I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. Having said that rather pre-orchestrated little spiel, I probably ought to sit down and shut up before I break any of Charlie's bleeping rules. <laughs> I, I love these church camp conferences. The first thing we have to do, you know, is do like Charlie did and read the rules. And, I, you know, here's a room. I, I'm sure at least half of the people in this room are alcoholic, and boy, do I know what to do with rules. <laughs> break them suckers. I, I'm already trying to figure out a way to get to the women's meeting at 10.30 instead of the men's meeting. Uh, uh, but I'd like to thank the committee for asking me to be here tonight uh, when Charlie called uh, uh, some time ago and asked if I would come down and share. I was elated. I, this, this is my absolute favorite kind of conference. Uh, there's another little conference similar to this called Sea to Glen. It was the first AA conference I attended in May of 1980 down in Oklahoma, or the, down in the Texas panhandle, south of Amarillo, Texas. Uh, I look around the room. I, there's, I guess, about five of you here that, that were there. Uh, some of the first people I met outside of my home group, which is the Ulysses Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Ulysses, Kansas. Some of the rest of you I've met at various conferences and service functions around the area, and it's uh, those of you that I haven't, I'm looking forward to getting to know as many of you as possible this weekend. I identified with Charlie when he was talking about trying to get people to help out. It reminded me of the story of the mother walking through the park one Sunday morning with her little six-year-old boy, and they were walking along and uh, came up up upon a couple of dogs in the park, and the dogs were doing you-know-what. And uh, they watched him a little bit, and, and, and the little boy tugged his mother's hand and said, Mommy, Mommy, what are those dogs doing? Well, she really didn't think that it was the time in his life to be explained the facts of life, and, and she was a quick study, and she said, uh, Well, son, well, here's what's happening. Those, the doggy on top is very, very sick, and the doggy on the bottom is taking the sick doggy to the hospital. <laughs> and the kid said, uh-huh, and they walked along another hundred yards or so, and he tugged her by the hand, and they said, Mommy? She said, what, son? He said, isn't that just the way life is? She said, whatever do you mean? He said, well, you try your very best to help someone out, and you end up just getting screwed. <laughs> <laughs> But that's certainly not the way I really feel tonight. I, I, I'm grateful to, grateful to be here, uh, grateful to be uh, first on, uh, on this agenda of speakers. I, I, uh, that way I can get the butterflies out of my system and, and enjoy the rest of the weekend. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing all the speakers. I, I uh, always look forward to hearing Susan talk. Uh, I'm, after all, I'm responsible for half her story. Uh, <laughs> uh, Nice to meet Ed and look forward to hearing him tomorrow evening. And, and Nancy, uh, she assumes the role of our spiritual giant Sunday morning. And I, I'm just grateful to be here and to be a part of this, uh, of this conference. I, uh, I think I had my first drink of alcohol. I was 
the first drink I can ever remember. I was 17 years old. Uh, it was during the summertime. My folks uh, had, were planning to be gone for the weekend. My dad had a brand new uh, a 54 Ford Coupe, and uh, he, I had asked him if I could use it that weekend. He said, if you're careful, I think it'll be all right. Uh, I called my buddies and asked them to go to the drive-in movie, and we went, went out and picked them up. We went to the drive-in. And after the drive-in, I don't remember how, but we ended up with a jug of tequila. And uh, I had grown up in a home that uh, knew the pains of alcoholism. Uh, my dad's drinking had caused a lot of trouble in our home, and I had made myself a promise at a very young age that I was never going to drink and never going to let drinking cause that kind of trouble in my life. But uh, somebody took the cork off that jar of tequila and started passing around, and when it came my turn, without any thought of any of that whatsoever, I, I tipped it up and took a big swallow, and I can remember it burned like hell, and there's the first rule broken. Uh, I burned like all Hades going down, and, uh, and it hit the bottom of my belly, and, and it felt kind of strange, and in a little bit some really nifty things started happening in my head. And, and that's the way it was, and, and that's absolutely the last thing I remember about that night. Uh, I don't remember any more at all about that night. I, I woke up the next morning. I was in my room at home, and I was in my bed. I was a little surprised to find I still had on the same clothes that I, I was wearing when I went to pick up my friend. The uh, only thing different, the front of my white T-shirt was multicolored. <laughs> It proves that the corollary to Newton's law is probably also true. What goes down sometimes does come up, particularly if it's tequila and a 17-year-old belly. Uh, I got out of bed, had a busting headache. My, my mouth tasted terrible. I looked out the window, and there sat Dad's 54 Ford Coupe, and the left rear fender looked like an accordion in the collapsed position. Uh, when he came home, I had to cook up some way to get out of that, and I said, gee, I don't know what happened. We went to the drive-in restaurant after the drive-in movie and walked out, and there, there's somebody crinkled that thing up. And, and I think the only thing significant that changed in my drinking for the next 24 years uh, was the, you know, how much of it I did. Because the same thing always happened when I drank alcohol. I never drank except what I got drunk. I... Uh, I never got drunk except what I blacked out. Whenever I drank, I got into trouble, and when I got into trouble, it was always necessary to lie and, and, and cover up my way out of it. And that's just the way it went for me. From the time I was 17 to the time I was 41, when I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, uh, <laughs> we used to have a member of the Ulysses group, he said, lying wasn't a, wasn't a necessity, it was a virtue. And, and that's the way it was with me. I, I got drunk in Denver one time in the early 1970s. And uh, as the big book says, uh, my drinking by that time had, had found its lower companions. I was in the seedier part of Denver, and I got drunk and, and uh, uh, ended up in the back seat of my car, passed out in the parking lot in, in, in kind of a tough part of town. That's where the cops found me, and after a minor altercation, which they won, uh, they ended up taking me to the Arapahoe County Jail. And uh, the next morning, uh, uh, I got up and, and I managed to get a lawyer, and he posted some bond, and, and uh, uh, I got out of there. I had flown to Denver in my little airplane for a business trip, and uh, I went out to the airport and, and 
got a cup of coffee and, and got my stuff gathered up and bought a copy of the Denver paper and got in the plane and was flying back to Ulysses. And I thought, well, this will probably be all right. Uh, uh, nobody knows about this. Are the cops that picked me up and the judge that I appeared before and the lawyer that I called. And there isn't much of any way Susan can find out about this deal because by that time my drinking was causing a lot of trouble at home. Uh, and I thought, I can probably just kind of pass this one right by. So I put the plane on autopilot and started reading the newspaper. And uh, I was, when I got back about page 104 somewhere, I was suddenly overcome with a sense of impending doom because I was sitting there looking at something called the weekly court transcript of Denver County. And it was a record of all the indictments and convictions and court appearances that had taken, that, taken place that week in Denver. And uh, I thought, my God, sometime next week, this week's record is going to appear in the Denver paper, and somebody in Ulysses is going to see it and going to take it and give it to her, and there's going to be hell to pay. So when I got home, I, I, uh, I went around town and, and checked all the places that sold the Denver paper. And, you know, Ulysses <laughs> is a little town, 5,000 people and uh, 300 miles from Denver. The only place sold the Denver paper is the grocery store next door to my office. So I went over there every day for a week, bought every copy of the Denver Post, took it out behind the office, and burned it in the incinerator. <laughs> I, I, I kind of followed a, a program of going to any lengths before I, I heard you read how it works the first time. But I go to any lengths to cover up the trouble that my drinking caused in my life. And, and that's, that's my drinking history. I'd get drunk, I'd get into trouble, and I'd have to lie my way out of it. And that's the way it went. You know, I, I grew up in Ulysses. I'm very provincial. I've never been very far from home. Uh, went, went away to college, met Susan. We got married, had two kids, a boy and a girl. And my drinking, at one time, I, I drank every day. And... Uh, that caused uh, so much trouble that I, I sometimes say I got one of those ultimatums. It really wasn't an ultimatum. It, it's, uh, some of you guys might identify with this. We're sometimes presented a choice, you know. You can either do this or live under a tree. <laughs> uh, live in the only motel in town, you know, which doesn't have running water where I come from. Uh, <laughs> what she said was is that... Uh, if you, I, I can't live like this anymore, and, and I want to go see a marriage counselor, and I'm going to go whether you go or not, and if, uh, if you don't go, then you have to go somewhere else to live. What she really gave me was a choice. I, I, I tended to view it at the time as an ultimatum. So to tell you how good things were going at home uh, uh, at that point in our lives, which I guess would have been in the mid-1970s, uh, we drove to Wichita, which is 240 miles, 220, 30, 40 miles from Ulysses. We drove in separate cars. She went down one day, and I went down another day. And uh, we went to, to see the uh, psychiatrist, uh, psychologist, the marriage counselor. She went in first, and she talked to him for about an hour, and then he came in. And, and, uh, and I'll tell you this story to illustrate a point. And the point is, is that it was after I got into Alcoholics Anonymous and after I did the fourth and fifth steps that I came to understand that my basic problem, you know, wasn't drinking and the kind of trouble that my drinking caused and the kind of lying and covering up I had to do as a result of that drinking. My basic problem was 
that I absolutely could not accept the reality of life on life's terms. And to try to tell you what I mean, we walked into, I walked into the psychiatrist uh, psychologist's office and uh, we sat there for a minute and got the pleasantries out of the road and he said, does your drinking cause trouble at home? And uh, uh, I thought, my God, you've just been sitting here talking to her for an hour. Uh, what kind of a quiz is this supposed to be? Uh, and I, you know, I said, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, what's she tell you? And he said, well, then I have a question for you. Why do you drink? But I couldn't accept the reality of that question. So I turned it around for him to say to me, then why do you drink at home? And, you know, I had an answer for that. I, I had an airplane, and I had a, a reason to be in Denver, a business reason to be in Denver occasionally, so I decided I'll just run away from home to drink. And from then on, I rarely drank at home. Uh, you know, if drinking caused trouble at home, then I just won't drink at home. And I, uh, for the rest of the time that I drank, I would get in my little airplane, fly to Denver on Wednesday, I get drunk Wednesday, uh, sometimes stay drunk Thursday, uh, sober up Friday, come home Friday or Saturday, uh, heal up, uh, put in two days of work at the office, and fly back to Denver on Wednesday. And if that made me a periodic drunk, then that's whatever one of those is, what I became, because I didn't drink, rarely drink daily from that point until I got the Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, my, my drinking... All the relationships in my life, I, you know, I, and, and that's just the way it was with me. I, 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 I hurt most those that, that loved me the most dearly and cared the most for me. Um, and it wasn't that I wanted to, it's just the way it turned out. I, uh, I, just, I just couldn't accept the reality of life, and the only way that I knew to deal with it was to drink at it, and when I drank at it, a little three-step cycle took in again. I get, I'm going to have to lie, wait, lie and cover up my way out of it. I, uh, to give you an idea how my alcoholic mind works, and I suppose sometimes still does, I, uh, I've been about as bald-headed since I was in my late 20s or early 30s as I am right now. And, and I, was a, I, I was a bar drinker. I, I like to go to those places, you know, where they, the Ice cubes were tinkling in the glasses, and the smoke was so thick that you had to cut it with a knife. And and they had a a little disco or a band or something, and the, and the music would get to rolling, and and the, the girls would get beautiful at midnight. And 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 the, but those evenings just didn't turn out the way I wanted them to turn out. And and I and I couldn't figure out why, and I couldn't accept the fact that they probably didn't turn out right because I was a stumbling, stinking drunk. I concluded that the reason they weren't turning out the way I wanted to is because I was prematurely ball-headed. <laughs> so uh, I, I knew about finding solutions to problems before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I went to a doctor in Wichita uh, who I thought, uh, paradoxically, was also, he was also ball-headed. And, and his business was hair transplants. And I said... What's, how do I get some hair? He said, for $5,000 and a lot of pain, I can, I can give you some cornrows of hair on the top of your head. And I said, I looked at him and I said, 
how come you don't have them? He said, it doesn't bother me that much being bald-headed. And I said, it kind of bothers me, but I don't like pain. I'll pass. I walked out the door and headed for a bar, and on, on the way to the bar, I walked by a kind of a men's barber shop that sold wigs. And they, they had all these little styrofoam heads in the, in, in the, in the, in the window with hair on them, and, and they had, I mean, lots of hair, you know. And so I thought I'll go, I'll, I'll go in, and, and I walked out an hour and a half later, and I, I had a full head of hair and a big pompadour, and I was certain that I looked exactly like Glenn Campbell. And I thought the only thing to do is go to a country and western joint and celebrate. Now, I don't know how much you know about men's rugs, but here's the way they work, or they did then. Uh, the, the object is to make the rug stick on top of the ball head. So you take some double-sided adhesive tape and you cut it into little strips and you, you stick one side of it on the wig and you pull the stuff off of it and so it's sticky on both sides and you stick the other part on your head. So one side stuck the wig, one side stuck your head. And in theory, and probably for non-alcoholic people, it tends to work pretty well. <laughs> but what happens to me when I drink scotch whiskey, I, I put it in my mouth, you know, it's still, it always burned a little going down, and it gets to my belly and it does those wonderful things, and, and about half an hour later, it all comes out the top of my head and forms sweat. Now, when you mix sweat and adhesive tape together, you got to know it doesn't work. So I'd, I'd go to the, I, I go out to the country and western place, and 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 they and, and they got the music going, and 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 then when I'm dancing and I'm doing the boogaloo, you know, and I'm drinking scotch and I'm sweating, and the rug twists around sideways uh, <laughs> on the top of my head, and I got to tell you, it's it's hard to be a cool operator, and <laughs> it's hard to be a cool operator in a swinging singles joint when you're parched sideways across your head. <laughs> And your pompadour's hanging over your right earlobe, you know. So I couldn't accept the reality of my life. <laughs> and I get into trouble and have to lie my way out of it. And that's really kind of the story of my last drink. On, on a scale of one to ten, my last drunk is a real bummer. Uh, it's just the way it is. I ran out of lies. Uh, I was planning my weekly Wednesday trip to Denver. Uh, to drink and do the things that I did when I went to Denver. And uh, about 10 minutes before I left on the 20th day of February, 1980, Susan called and said, Joyce and I are going to go with you to Denver. <laughs> that was real bad news for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, is that Susan was the mostest, lastest person in the world. I didn't want to go to Denver with me that day. And Joyce, her friend Joyce, who worked with her, was the second most, this lastest person in the world. I didn't want to go to Denver with me. The reasons I didn't want Susan to go, I'm sure, are obvious to you. The reason I didn't want Joyce to go is a little bit different. Joyce and I uh, had, I always thought, had something in common. We drank a good deal alike. Uh, her husband, John, worked for me. She worked for Susan. We were social friends. They'd come over to the house. And Joyce and I'd say, we'll go to the kitchen and fix some drinks. And we'd go fix us three drinks and drink them real quick and then fix us all one and take, it, take one out to John and Susan. And they'd let their ice cubes melt and stuff like that. And we'd say, we'll get some more drinks. And we'd go to the kitchen and we'd have three quick shooters and fix them a mixed drink. And 
taken back out, and, and I enjoyed Joyce's company. But that, that uh, New Year's Eve, a very strange thing had happened to Joyce. Uh, while she was drinking, she had tried to take her own life. She was unsuccessful in that attempt, and after a brief hospitalization, uh, she had started attending, of all things, the Ulysses Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I absolutely didn't gonna want to go anywhere with her. But I, uh, it happened too quick. I mean, I used to think that I was so good at covering things up that, you know, if Richard Nixon had had a bunch of alcoholics like me working for him, he'd still be emperor or king or something. I mean, we, I, could, I think I could have covered up Watergate, but I, this happened too quick, and I couldn't get out of it, and they got in the plane, and we went to Denver. And... Uh, we, we checked into the hotel, and I went to the bar, and they went about doing their thing. They tell me we went out to dinner that night at a rather nice place, and I had two bottles of Pouli Fousse and, 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 and three martinis and, and didn't make too big of an ass out of myself, second rule. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, but we, I, I mean, we got back to the room. And I got up the next morning, and I was going through my little drill that I did when I woke up in Denver, Colorado. And, and part of this little drill was to go through the stuff that came out of my pockets to see if the credit card was there, the American Express card, because I usually paid for things with my American Express card, and I usually didn't have it when I got up in Denver. Or about a lot of the time I didn't have it. I was on a first-name basis with the American Express lady in Phoenix. I'd call up and say, this is Don, and she'd say, you lost it again, and I'd say, yeah. And she'd say, that's okay, we'll send you a new one. After I got sober, I, I, I always worried that maybe she thought I had taken offense out of her or something because I didn't lose it anymore. But, but I, was, I was going through my stuff, and Susan woke up, and she said, What are you doing? And uh, the, I don't know, you know, I ran out of lies. To me, it was my moment of truth. Not very dramatic, but it's my story, so when I got it. And I said, Well, I'm looking for my credit card. And she said, Why? Can't you remember? if you left it. And I said, no, I collect it. Whether I left it, I don't remember where we were. And she said, Don, how long has it been like this? And I said, Susan, it's been like this for a long, long time. Again, I guess I just ran out of lies. And we got, then we, as I recall, we, we, we did another little drill that happened when I woke up hungover after a drunk and when I was with Susan. So we we kind of had this thing perfected. She would she would sit in her nightgown, cross-legged on the bed, with a pillow behind her back, you know, propped up against the headboard. And I would sit in a chair with my head hanging down between my legs. And she would tell me all the things that I had done wrong and bad the night before. And I would sit there and say, yeah, yeah, and I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. We kind of really perfected that drill over about the last 15 or 20 years of my life. And uh, I remember my sponsor telling me when, when we got to talking about step eight. He said, you know, Don, he said, in your case, I, I don't want you going home and saying I'm sorry. He said, you are the world's running expert on saying I'm sorry. And he said, for you, it's going to be necessary to make your amends by doing, stopping by not doing the things that you're doing and starting to do some different things. But we went through that little drill and uh, then got cleaned up and ordered some coffee, and Joyce was staying down the hall, and Susan asked Joyce to come up and have some coffee with us, and I really didn't want to see her. 
And she walked in, very cheerful and bright-eyed and bouncy, and I'm sitting there uh, trying to get the cup of coffee down, spilling some of it on my shirt. My hands are shaking. And she says, Don, how are you? And I said, not worth a damn. And she said the five little magic words about you. And I knew she did. And I looked at her, and I looked at me a little bit, spilling the coffee, trying to get it to my mouth. And I said, Joyce, would you tell me something about this thing, Alcoholics Anonymous, that I think? Well, God not only sent me an angel that morning, he sent her on a cloud. It started snowing right there. And for all the rest of that day and that night and the next day, and well late in the next afternoon when it quit snowing. Joyce, this was the 21st day of February of 1980. She, was, she had been there since the first day of January or the first week in January. She probably didn't know all the 12 steps by heart, probably could have not told you very many of the traditions, because I'm sure had never heard of the 12 concepts. But she had a sponsor in a big book, and she was going to five AA meetings a week. And if you're new or fairly new, don't let anybody message because she carried the message to me in that day and a half. Susan has since said she never got so sick and tired of hearing people talking about drinking and not drinking and how not to drink and, and, and all these kind of things in her life. And I did some really rash and stupid things in that day and a half, one of which was I promised her to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> well, by the time it quit snowing the next afternoon, the heat was off. Susan was speaking to me again. and. We got in a little plane and flew home, and I thought, this too will surely pass. I knew that line before I got to you. But, but at, uh, after supper that night, uh, and it was a cold February evening in Ulysses, Kansas, and the doorbell rang, and I opened the door, and she grabbed me by the arm, no coat on or anything else, and jerked me outside, and I said, where are we going? And she said, we're going to an AA meeting. And we did. And that, I've been going ever since. And that started about a two-month love affair for me with Alcoholics Anonymous. I liked everything about you. I, 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 I liked your laughter. I, I liked your sharing. And, 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 and you, most of all, I liked the fact that you came up to me and told me I was welcome and that you were glad I was there. And people were not telling me at that time in my life that I was welcome. As a matter of fact, they were throwing me out of places. They weren't telling me I, they were glad I was there. And I liked it. And that night, you sold me a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You said that you would have given it to me, except you thought I could afford to pay for it. And you handed me a little pamphlet called Sponsorship. And I, and I started going. They had five meetings a week. We did it. The Ulysses Group then. Now we have seven. Um, and I went to about every meeting, and they kept saying, have you asked anyone to be your sponsor? And I said, no, for a few days, and then I found out, you know, that that wasn't cool, and the only way I was going to stop that question, so there was this guy that I knew who had always kind of been a hero of mine, and I asked him to be my sponsor, and, and he started coming by and taking me to meetings on the nights that we had meetings, on the nights that we didn't have meetings, he would, uh, he would uh, come and pick me up, and we'd go to a nearby town for an AA meeting, and I liked it. I liked everything about it. We'd drive to those meetings, and we'd talk about how powerless I was with my life and, and he'd talk about his life and I, I could see that I was the same way in mine that I was please turn your tape do not rewind turn your tape and continue on side two I was over alcohol and that because of that my life was so unmanageable and uh, and we'd, we'd share about you know the, the fact that 
this crazy kind of thinking that I, I mean, that I've been doing ever since I took my first drink when I was 17 years old. I mean, I knew what booze did when I took that drink, and I didn't even consider it could do it to me. And from then on, all my experience told me what booze did to me when I drank it, but I never once thought about that as I was picking up the jug to pour it down. And he explained to me that that was the kind of insanity that the second step was talking about. The, the kind of thing, I never even give a thought to the consequences. I just do it without any thought, consequences be damned. And then we kind of got started talking about the third step, and I said, I, I got a lot of trouble right here because I, 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 I tried church. I, uh, at one time, uh, uh, at I was going to church on a regular basis. Uh, those good people, uh, they did about everything to me you could do. They, they, they baptized me and they chastised me and they exercised me and they prayed over me in English and other strange languages and I'd run right out of there and go to the bar and get drunk and just do the same thing over and over again. And I said, this, this, this God thing isn't going to work for me, Louis. And he said, well... Uh, you know, he didn't talk a lot about God as I understand him. And, 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 and most of all, he got it real simple for me. One night we were on our way to Johnson, Kansas to a meeting. He said, now, how did we come to go to Johnson, Kansas? And I said, well, we got, you came to get me. And he said, right. And he said, did we go north or south? And I said, well, we went south, and then we turned at the corner, and we went straight west. And he said, why do we go west? And I said, I don't know. And he said, I do. We made a decision to go west. He said, all I'm asking you to do is to make a decision to go down this road with those of us in Alcoholics Anonymous for a while. And, and I kind of thought maybe I could do that. And we went to a meeting a couple of nights later at the Ulysses group, and a guy got up, I was, and they, had it, they used to do these miraculous things. They were having a third step meeting. And this guy got up and was sharing about step three, and, and I, I, it came my turn to share. I said, I just can't see how God can have any effect in my life. And he said, Don, maybe you could accept that God works through people. And I thought that was the most wonderful thing I had ever heard. And we talked about that for the rest of the meeting, and we talked about it after the meeting to 1 o'clock in the morning. Now, my drinking, as I said, or tried to explain before, uh, kind of messed up my wife's thinking. <laughs> and when I was out drinking, she would sleep on my side of the bed so that, you know, when I got home, I would have to wake her up, and she would roll over, and she could check me out and and find out what kind of shape it was in and know what time it was. And I got home that night, and she had not yet started going to Al-Anon. And I shook her awake, and she was on my side of the bed, and uh, she said, what time is it? I said, 1 o'clock. She said, where have you been? I said, to an AA meeting. And I said, Susan, I learned the most amazing thing tonight in that meeting about Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, what? And I said, do you know that God works through people? <laughs> and she said, oh. She, she said, Don, how long do you think you're going to keep going to Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, gosh, Susan, I think maybe the rest of my life. And she said, oh, my God. <laughs> God works in strange ways. Uh, two days after that, she attended the first meeting of Al-Anon family groups. Susan uh, grabbed a hold of the program of Al-Anon like a drowning person who's been washed overboard, that's it. She, uh, she uh, early on, made a commitment to the, to the 12 steps of the program of Al-Anon and the, and the Al-Anon fellowship. Uh, she's uh, today an 
Alateen's sponsor. She's an active member of Al-Anon, and I'm so very grateful for that. I believe with all my heart when it says in the book that wife or no wife, job or no job, you know, any man can get sober and all, I, all he's got to do is trust God and clean house. But it's this drunk's experience and story that Susan, being in the, in the Aladon family group, uh, has enhanced my sobriety. It has made our, our walk a thing for which I'm truly grateful. And, I, and the, most, the miracle of my life is that I stand here sober tonight. The greatest manifestation of that miracle, other than the fact that I'm not drunk and I'm not drinking, the greatest manifestation of that miracle is, is the new relationship that Susan and I have together, and that's come about as a result of the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, and the fellowships and the program and sponsorship of each, respectively. Uh, well, my love affair with Alcoholics Anonymous was rapidly approaching an end. My sponsor had been after me for a little while to do the fourth step of this program, and I said, I'm not ready, I don't want to, I'll get around to it. Finally, he showed up in my office, and he had a big chief notepad, a notebook, you know, yellow, cheap yellow paper, two big ballpoint pens, and he said, uh, write till you run out of paper, or you run out of ink, and be over in my house Saturday night. He said, i got to go out of town. This was Tuesday. He said, I'll see you Saturday night. And I said, I don't, I don't want to do this, Louie. And he said, okay. He said, I'm going to tell you, Don, I don't think you're going to stay sober much longer unless you do this. And he said, I sponsor a lot of people. I, I'm very busy with my job, and I care about you, and I have a continuous, ongoing interest in your sobriety. But if you don't care to do this, then I want you to find somebody else to work with. So here was a guy that had just spent two months spent a lot of his time the last two months with me, and I didn't have any friends. And I thought, oh my gosh, I don't want to lose this friendship of this guy. And I really looked up to him. He, as near as I could tell, practiced all of the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous as best as I could understand them in all his affairs. I thought he was the AA program personified. As a matter of fact, I still do. But I, d I didn't want him, I didn't want to lose him. So I said, okay. And I started as best I could writing that fourth step. And for the rest of that week, I wrote the immoral litany of my life. And showed up at his house on Saturday night, and he grabbed me by the hand. We went upstairs. We did a very weird thing. We got down on our knees and said a prayer. Asked God to deliver us from the bondage of ourselves. Let victory over our troubles. Be a witness to those that he would have us help. Uh, then we sat down and I handed him my inventory, and he handed it back. He said, it's yours. You read it. And I didn't want to, because I knew I was going to shock him. And I started reading that lit of every bad thing that I could think of that I'd ever done. And when I was about halfway through, and I was too ashamed to look up, and he said, Don, stop for a little bit. And I looked up, and there were tears running down his face. And I thought, God, God, I've done it now. LAUGHTER I, I've shocked him so bad he can't take anymore. <laughs> and he looked at me with tears running down his face, and he said, Don't you know, my friend, you're telling me the story of my life? It was some time later that I read in the 12 and 12 where it says that the fifth step is the beginning of the end of loneliness. But I knew it that night because here was a man that I thought was almost perfection. And he was telling me that he, in his experience, 
could relate to the things that I, would, I had done. And that maybe if he could make this kind of a turnaround in his life, there might be hope for me. So I went ahead and read him that inventory. And when we got through, he, we went through it and we, we, we quit looking at the places and the, and, and, and the events, the circumstances, and started looking at the underlying causes of these things. And he helped me to see that what, what was operative here were some things that were fundamentally wrong with me. Fundamental things like fear that I was eaten up with fear and fundamental things like resentment that I was so resentful at my mother and my father and my brother and all the people in my relationships that that coupled with my basic selfishness and self-centeredness kept me from having any meaningful, meaningful relationship in my life. And that forgiveness was a word that wasn't in my vocabulary and tolerance and patience and understanding were concepts that I couldn't even begin to understand. That, that I operated strictly on, 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 on resentment and judgment. And, and we talked about was I willing to give up these things and ended up getting down on our knees again and saying a seven-step prayer and asking God to take these things from me. And I thought, gee, it's been a pretty good, darn good evening. And then my love affair came to a total stop with Alcoholics Anonymous because he said, now get out a clean piece of paper and we're going to make a list and we're going to make it from this inventory and it's going to be a list of the people that you have harmed. And I'd been around, I'd hung around for almost two months now. I knew I was coming. I knew we were going to start talking about making amends. And I said, look, I can't do it. There's no way I can do this. And he said, yes, you can. And he shared with me the story of how he had cleaned up his life and how he had paid back small amounts of money over many years and how he'd got the slate wiped clean and how he had, had made a living kinds of amends to the family members of his family, not saying I'm sorry, but not doing it that way anymore and doing it a different way. But I really didn't believe I could do it, and I only stuck out the rest of the evening because I didn't want to lose his friendship. And he had me put down all these names and started with mine and then Susan's and the kids and my mom and my dad and my brother and, 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 and a whole raft of other names, including the state of Kansas, the federal government, because I was in the highway construction business like the story about the short construction season. I'd have been great in those days up there. I worked a short season anyway. But I had been engaged for many years, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm primarily a governmental contractor. I, I work for the state highway department, the federal government. And, and theoretically, our work was obtained on the basis of competitive bidding. But uh, apparently for a long time in that industry, there had been a way to circumvent that process, and it was called bid rigging. And to me, it was an easier, softer way. Uh, uh, it, it was a way to, to take, take away the competition to, to artificially inflate the price of the work. And I had, when I was first approached, I thought it sounded like a neat idea, and I had done it ever since. Uh, and I had very carefully explained this in that inventory to Louis. And, and when we got to that point, I stopped. And, and I said, now, Louis, you understand this is the way... I do business, and this is the way business is done in my industry. Oh, yeah, Don. He said, I understand it very well. He and Charlie came from the same school. He said, there's a one-word name for it, Don. I said, what is it? He says, called stealing. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, if you keep doing it, you're going to get drunk. Well, this, this area of my life, my business life, just like my family life, my personal life, 
I, I did stop doing some things that I was doing, and in terms of my family life and my personal life, I started doing some different things. I quit rigging bids in my business life. But I, I knew because my sponsor told me that that wasn't enough, that there was a way, some way I had to find a way to make amends for this. The problem is you can't rig bids by yourself. By definition, it takes more, more than one to tango in that game, you know? And so this business about except for injuring them or others came into play. And he said, well, pray about it, and the answer will come. Now, if you're new or fairly new, or if you happen to be at that point in your program, dealing with the ninth step, I, I have news for you. Be careful what you pray about. Because after I started praying about it, one month after I was one year sober, the Justice Department of the federal government came to help me take my ninth step. <laughs> They sent a special task force out of the Chicago Division, Antitrust Division to Kansas City, opened up shop, and I was the second person they indicted. I had done precisely the things that they had said that I had done. I went through an agonizing period of how to deal with this because I, I couldn't plead not guilty. I was guilty. I had done exactly what they said I had done, yet I felt that if I pled guilty, I was incriminating those people who had some, also bid on the same job. Uh, with the advice of my sponsor and with the help of but he told me to go get a good lawyer, tell him exactly where I was coming from, what I was doing, and I was an AA, try to explain the eighth and ninth step to him and, and, and see if we could figure out a way to deal with it. And, and my lawyer went to the government and said, he'll plead guilty to what he's done, uh, and you've you got to figure out the rest. He'll admit to what, his, what he did. And so that's what I did. And, uh, and I wondered what was going to happen. Uh, the money part, actually, I, I took the figure that I had written in my first inventory of what I thought I had cheated the government and the state of Kansas out of and gave it to my lawyer. He said, my lawyer said, why do you think you owe him? And I said, here's what I inventory. And he went, I thought, you know, they'd say, well, gee, you're being a nice guy and you've, you've admitted doing wrong. And so he called me back, and he said, they agree with you, absolutely. They want that much back. <laughs> but we worked out a, a, a five-year program to pay it back, and, and uh, by the grace of God, it's paid back. It's been paid back now for about five years, four years. But uh, we also had to appear before a judge. I had to appear before a judge. And I, and I wondered what was going to happen. And uh, we went up before the judge, and, and a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous had written letters to the judge telling them they knew I'd quit rigging bids when I got to that point in my A program. And uh, it said in the big book that we, we were to be prepared to go to prison if necessary, and I thought, Jesus, that sounds a little severe. But I stood before the judge, and he said, have you got anything to say? And I couldn't think of anything original. I stole the line. I said, well, Your Honor, I know my troubles are of my own making. He said, I agree with you. And he said, it's a serious crime. And he said, it's sent you six months in the federal penitentiary. Well, uh, that was in October. And because the pens were full or something, uh, they weren't going to send me till the sixth day of December, which also happened to be my naked birthday. I thought that was a hell of a you know, way to celebrate. But that started a really weird, scary period of time for me because I decided I was going to get sexually molested in prison. I had seen this movie on TV. <laughs> now, I was going to a minimum security prison 
and, and this was like in Atlanta in the big house or something, but this guy had really gotten worked over. It was R-rated, should have been worse, you know, and, and, and I just, I went bananas. And I told my sponsor, and I was bawling and crying and carrying on, and he made me write a special inventory about that, and it didn't help. And one night I went over to my A buddy's house, and I was, you know, I was a basket case, and he said, what is wrong with you, Don? And I said, okay, I'm going to prison. He said, well, hell, they're going to let you out. You know, you're going to be there the rest of your life. I said, you don't understand. I think they're going to rape me. <laughs> he did that, but he, he wasn't near that polite. He, he started roaring with laughter, and he got down on the floor and rolled around and roared with laughter. And I said, Kenny, this isn't funny. I'm scared to death. I've written an inventory. I have prayed about this. I can't get any relief. And he finally, you know, wiped the tears out of his eyes, and he said, Don, your ego has no ends. <laughs> I said, whatever do you mean? He said, look at you. He said, you're 41, almost 42 years old. You're going to be 42 the day you walk into the joint. You're pot-bellied, ball-headed. He said, baby, you ain't got what they want. <laughs> And he was right. <laughs> Prison wasn't so bad. I'd already been in the Navy. I knew how to look busy without really doing anything. <laughs> and Alcoholics Anonymous was there. And that's really kind of part of Susan's story, and I'm not going to get into that since she's going to share with me here. But uh, because of the program of Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous, we made two very dear, wonderful friends. They met us at the airport when I went to prison. They they took care of Susan when she came down on visiting day. They, they made sure my kids had a, cr a good Christmas that Christmas. And it's one of those stories that only happens in AA. And he's very ill. And I remember him every morning in my prayers. But uh, a strange thing happened. My lawyer called me after I'd been there two months and just about gotten my bed warm. And he said, Don, very unusual things happened. He said, because of all the letters that members of Alcoholics Anonymous wrote on your behalf, the judges granted you a court-ordered parole after serving two months and placed me on two and a half years probation and I went back home. So many things have happened. So many wonderful things have happened. If I had, the day I walked into AA, the 22nd day of February of 1980, if, if you had given me a blank ticket and said, okay, Don, here's the ticket for your ride on the AA way of life. You fill in what you want. I would have sold myself short. I would have probably said, uh, help me get my drinking under control at least. Help me get some of the heat off at home. Help me straighten out some of the mess that my business is in. And, and that's about all I would have expected. But what's happened to this old drunk is just like it says in the book, I got rocketed into another dimension. The relationships of my life have risen like Phoenix from the ashes. Susan and I have a relationship that I, I never even dreamed about. We used to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe and scream at each other. With the help of good sponsorship on both of our parts, we learned how to communicate. We start out talking to each other. We got to be friends. And, and I learned that, that loving wasn't getting. That, that, that Susan wasn't going to be able to give me what I needed to be okay that that had to come from a power greater than myself and that it wasn't her. 
relationship with my kids. When I first came to AA, my son would hide my big book. He'd heard all the broken promises. My daughter cried because I was doing all my drinking away from home. She wasn't aware of my drinking. She said, Daddy, you can't be an alcoholic. May of 1988, that kid who one time called me after I was sober and called me every name I'd ever heard and some that I think that he invented, especially for me. In May of 1988, that kid called me up and asked this old ex-problem drinker to be the best man at his wedding. And I think that only happens in this guy's life because of Alcoholics Anonymous. That daughter who was so ashamed that I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous ended up going to a rather prestigious university in, in the East. When she was a senior, her faculty advisor was a guy who was a former non-alcoholic trustee of the Board of Trustees of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she wrote an honors thesis on employee assistance programs, primarily how they utilized Alcoholics Anonymous. The mother that with, which, with whom I was totally estranged, my sponsor made me go over and start talking to her and just seeing if I could be of some help to her. And we became good friends. My dad had died 12 years before I got sober and it was necessary for me to go through a graveside amends situation and a lot of inventorying and some outside professional help to get that relationship healed. In the time that Susan and I have been in the program, uh, her father died and her mother died quite young and, and, and we were so angry about that because we felt cheated and, and her dad died after suffering a long and lengthy illness and it was a really hard death and, and when my dad died I was so eaten up with resentment I, it, and so wrapped up in active alcoholism that it like, was like I wasn't hardly there but when my mother passed away last August the 4th it was like <coughs> saying so long I'll see you later to a good friend and that was kind of a neat experience for me. I don't have to look over my shoulder anymore at business. Finally got the amends made, got reinstated. Some years my business is good, some years it's not. But I play with the rules. Contrary to what I said at the beginning, I do play with the rules in life anymore because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's one more thing to say and I'm going to sit down and shut up. And it, it's something that's kind of hard for me to talk about to put into words. And it's this business about having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. When I got sober in the Ulysses group of Alcoholics Anonymous, the closest treatment center was about 180 miles away. To me, I think that was a great blessing. And I don't mean to say anything pro or con about treatment centers, but it was a blessing to me because a 12-step group there, a 12-step job there, meant something different than taking somebody to treatment. Our local group, through good PI and really CPC work for many years, had a great relationship with the local hospital. And the doctors would take in a sloppy wet drunk, dry him out for a few days, and we would go up from the group, two people at a time, two hours at a time, all night long, and sit with him if he wanted us and if he was willing to have us. Right after I did my first fifth step, my sponsor encouraged me to put my name on that list and very shortly after that I got a call about 3.30 in the morning and it was the PI chairman of the local group and he said, Don, we got a guy in the hospital room, so-and-so, his name's Raymond and would you go set from 4 to 6? And I said, oh, I guess so. And he said, no, I want to know. He said, we don't do it that way in AA. Will you go or won't you go? And I said, yeah, I'll go. But I didn't want to go. <laughs> I mean, the last thing I wanted to do was go up there at 4 o'clock in the morning and set with some guy and... and 
and, and Jerry and the AA buddy went and, and uh, what we really did for two hours was two things. One, we helped him chase little green dogs off the bed. <laughs> Raymond was in great shape. But he was like me. He had a lot of pride. I used to lay in the, in the alley in those, behind those nice restaurant and restaurants in Denver in my own vomit and be mad when they'd call people to come get me. And Raymond wouldn't use the bedpan. He wanted to go into the bathroom, you know. And so he was wired up with all these tubes and, and, uh, and bottles. And, and, uh, and I'd help, help him walk. And Jerry'd push along the damn tubes and bottles. And we'd get him into the bathroom. And then he was really in great shape, so he didn't have any aim at all. <laughs> and every time after getting back to bed, I'd have to wash my shoes. <laughs> and I did this for two hours. I mean, Raymond not only didn't, I mean, he didn't have anything I wanted. There wasn't anything that he had that he could have given me that I would have taken, you know. But I still couldn't quite see the point. And at 6 o'clock, a couple of other members of the group came and said, you guys can go home. And I walked out to get in my car, and I opened the door, and I looked up, and the sun was coming up. And I'll never forget the feeling that I had, because I never had it before. I thought, this is really weird. I just spent two hours doing the last thing in the world that I thought I wanted to do, helping a sick, sloppy drunk. And I've never felt this good in my life. I, I was aware of something. I couldn't define it. But I knew it was a part of me, and I knew it was somewhere in here, and I knew I, I didn't have it when I went down there that morning, but I did then. Then I went to home and shaved and, and went to work and for the first time I think since I'd been in AA the first time I can remember I could then recall or since recall since I had been in AA I went all day long and never had one thought of taking a drink of alcohol and it's been that way ever since and I know that since that time I have been able to feel and believe and to do things that I could not feel and do and believe on the strength of my unaided will alone I've been able to go this many days without a drink I've been able to restore things in my life that I didn't believe were restorable. And I believe that all this is by the grace of a power that I still can't describe much better now than I could then, but that I simply choose to call God. Thank you very much for having